everyone, and welcome to The Darkest Hour. I'm your host, Amanda Jane. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of something you didn't want to be a part of? Maybe it's agreeing to go to a party, only to get there and realize it's the last place you wanted to be. Or maybe it's just a bad plan, for which who could blame you for not wanting to be a part of it? Oftentimes, our minds can strategically navigate our way out of these situations, especially in this day and age with technology at our fingertips. You can practically escape to anywhere at any time, should you choose. Of course, that's if you have somewhere to go, and that you're of age to make those choices. So what happens when the place you're trying to escape is your home, and you're all of 10 years old? I think the invention of hiding under the covers must have stemmed from experiences like these. The idea that if we simply cover ourselves, our eyes, then it's not real. Or perhaps it's the closest thing to an escape. Tonight, we hear the experiences of others. Some who were desperate for some sort of escape. And others who simply chose to embrace what they were experiencing. Both equally as chilling. So, let's get started, shall we? I didn't really believe in ghosts until I started working in an old building. It was built in the early 1900s and designed to be an assisted living facility. Of course, people died there back then, and then the business shut down. The property was bought, and years later, another assisted living facility occupied the building, this time for the developmentally disabled. Some of the patients had their own studio apartments, and others lived in a more closely monitored hall upstairs. Keep in mind that I didn't know a lot of these haunting details until after the first few incidents and I started asking questions. A colleague of mine, a nurse, had worked at the second business and knew the patients. She would eventually fill me in on who she thought this spirit and the others were. After the second business closed, the building was redone, and my workplace came to occupy the building. I won't say much about the business except that It was a medical setting that involves a lot of physical and emotional pain. So the living people's energy in this place was nuts, regardless of any spirit activity. Most of my time was spent in the basement. When walking down the stairs to the basement, there's a little nook with a door that leads to the backside of the building. There's also an apartment that somebody had lived in previously and was now empty and locked. My bosses don't even have the key to it. The owner has the only copy. But for whatever reason, that little nook seemed occupied to me. I could clearly see that nobody was there, but there was an energy. Someone was standing there, and the only way I could describe the feeling was pure dread. I was so afraid and I didn't know why. I eventually came to understand I was feeling the spirit's emotions. They were scared and sharing that experience with me. I would hear footsteps behind me, 
up and down the stairs, but never felt threatened. One day I was in the laundry room, and the door leading out to the nook was cracked. This door never moves on its own, but that day it was pushing against the door jam like it was trying to close. I usually kept the door shut due to the feeling in the hallway, and it seemed to help. I made the mistake of engaging with it. Up until this point, I knew that spirits existed, but I'd never had one touch me. I said, Oh, are you trying to close the door for me? Thank you. And I just got drained. My breath got heavy. My mouth was dry. He took my energy and I was baffled. I had never felt anything like it. Then he used my energy to let me know he really was there. When I walked up the stairs, the footsteps were unmistakable this time. This wasn't a creak. They were stomps. He followed me upstairs, down the hall, and into the linen closet. The linen closet door is one that's made to swing shut automatically. When I went in, it stayed open. I was putting away laundry and hadn't noticed. The nurse I previously mentioned came from down the hall because she felt the energy shift. She stood in the doorway looking at me so puzzled. You just hanging out in the closet? She asked. Yeah, my friend's holding the door for me. I can see that. It was one of the weirdest moments I've ever had with a coworker at this job. We were both at a loss for words. Since that day, the door will not shut on its own. The nurse later on told me about a man who lived downstairs, who was disabled and often tried to run away. He was scared most of his life. She previously worked at the retirement home and knew him when he was alive. That incident seemed to trigger something. Because the back door that's usually locked will randomly open when there's nobody in the basement but me. Once when I closed the door, it felt like someone was pulling from the other side. And when I finished closing the door, I felt burning on my arm. I took my jacket off and there were four scratch marks down my arm. Through my jacket. I guess he didn't like me touching the door. Finally, one day I took a video of the door for my best friend and was telling her the story of the spirit. I pointed the camera to the apartment that was his. His apartment that's always locked. The only key six hours away. I turned the knob and it was unlocked. I stuck my phone in there for a moment and got such a horrible feeling in my stomach that I had to close it back up. I still have the video if anyone's interested. My coworkers and I have come up with no plausible solutions besides the obvious. Since that experience, I've quit for other reasons, but I wanted to stay and maybe help him. I don't want him to be trapped or scared. He should be able to move on if he's in pain.
When I was younger, I was terribly afraid of myself. Not exactly how it sounds, but bear with me. This was the early 2000s, and I was having a truly great time in the third grade. I do remember that. I loved my class, my teacher, my new tire swing. But then third grade morphed into a not-so-great time. Mainly for my mom. She got laid off from her job at Ford Motors, which meant that we had to move from our house to a duplex on the other side of town. I have a vivid memory of my mom chopping carrots in the kitchen, telling me that I couldn't complain. That I ought to be grateful we were going to get to have a roof over our heads at all at a time like this. I better be grateful, she'd said, again, as she turned around to look at me. I was. Grateful, that is. I never did complain, so I think she was the one feeling insecure about it. I do recall the last time I stood outside the old house. I was pretty sad, looking at the tire swing. My mom telling me the day before that I had to leave it, that there was nowhere to put it across town. But I told her I was excited, and I just kept up a good kid attitude about it, best I could. The owner of the building lived on the other side of the duplex from us. She was the mother of a former co-worker of my mom's. A small, elderly woman with four very small dogs. I liked those dogs because they weren't yippy like most small dogs. They all seemed just about as old and as quiet as the woman herself. I only ever saw her early in the morning when I would get the school bus. She would sit out front with all her dogs, smoking a million cigarettes. Just enjoying the quiet, I suppose. Over time, she did come outside a bit more. I think she liked me, and so did her dogs. Sometimes I would just sit out there with her, in quiet, pet the dogs, do some homework. And then it was like right when I decided that third grade still had a chance of rocking. That's when things got scary. The first time it happened, I told myself that it was a dream. Just to get through the night and the following day. I'd woken up to use the bathroom one night. And when I went to turn around to dry my hands, I swear I saw my reflection disappear. Like it darted away. But to where? Quickly turning around, I saw my reflection. Almost what I wanted. Except my face was blank. No features. I mean, no eyes, no mouth, nothing. I rapidly rubbed my eyes, and I opened the bathroom door. Now I found myself looking back into the mirror with half of my body out of the bathroom. Everything was normal-looking but it definitely didn't feel normal. I was so scared I didn't even bother turning off the light to the bathroom. That's when I told myself it was a dream, or a dreamlike state. I just needed to go back to bed and wake up in the daytime. Everything would be normal in the morning. One of the first things I heard in the morning was my mom telling me it was time for school. Perfect. That was normal. As I ate my cereal, she came into the kitchen telling me to remember to turn off the bathroom light when I'm finished. She was saying that it must have been on all night since she had to turn it off this morning. She was going on and on about how it wastes energy and we need to be conserving it. 
But I just kept thinking about the light. Just realizing that that part wasn't a dream. But the rest probably was. My kid brain let me forget about the event long enough to get comfortable again. Until one day I was in the living room, standing, watching TV. The sun was coming through the side window, creating a shadow of me in the living room. I was wiggling around as kids do, and then I would stand still for a moment, enthralled by my TV show, repeating this series of motions for a while when I noticed something strange. As I stood still, my shadow moved. I tried to catch it moving, but whenever I would turn to look, it would just be my shadow. I got bored of trying to catch it, and I kept to my show, and suddenly... I felt a small gust of wind behind my ear, like somebody had blown on it. Jolting around, I saw nothing. But more so, I saw that my shadow wasn't moving at all. I turned every which way, but it just stood still. My gaze started to move in a panic, first to the window and then to my shadow and then all over the place. I then became fixated on my shadow. I started to move my arms around like a bird to see if the shadow mimicked that motion. But it didn't. I remember running directly up the stairs to try and tell my mom, but she was in the shower, hollering for me to wait for her to get out because she can't hear anything I'm saying. So I just sat there in her room, on her bed, buried under her covers, trying to wrap my brain around what it was I just saw. By the time I explained it to my mom, it all felt like some sort of dream, and she wasn't convinced either. But this kept happening. My shadow would continuously taunt me, usually just quick enough to make me doubt myself, but plenty of times it was undeniable. There was one night I was grabbing a towel from the closet and heading into the bathroom for a shower. My room was closest to the stairs, situated between a closet and the bathroom. As I passed my room, I noticed that I'd seen something. So I stepped back. Looking inside my room, I could see what looked like my shadow. It was my shape. It was where my shadow should be. But it was moving and I wasn't. It was doing different things than I was. As I continued to look on, my fear only grew as it became obvious that the movements were all wrong. The legs slowly started bending in a way that formed a human W. It was truly disturbing to watch, but I couldn't look away. Then, the shadow started to move towards me, the closer it got, the blurrier my vision, until I realized I wasn't having vision problems. I was seeing something terrifying. I was seeing exactly what I'd seen before in my reflection. It was me, but no features. And it was no longer in a mirror. Instead, almost within an arm's reach. But everything in me said to move. Now. And so I did not allowing myself to interact any further with this thing. I slammed the bathroom door shut 
and immediately regretted my choice of rooms. But at this point, I was running out of options. It was like no room was safe in this place. I turned the shower on and I just sat there for a while, not looking in the mirror and waiting for it to fog up before I got into the shower. It wasn't a long shower, and I told my mom I was sleeping in her room and that was that. She entertained me for a few nights, and for whatever reason, I had no issues in that room. We lived in this place for almost a year, so like nine months. The entire third grade, I know that much. Naturally, I had to stop sleeping in my mom's room, per her orders, and I found myself bouncing between my room and the living room. Having more luck in the living room, but being more comfortable in my bed. I'll never forget one morning after a hard night. The old lady was out with her dogs, per usual. We exchanged the normal wave and kept on to the bus. This is normally where our interaction ends, but this morning was different. She called out to me. Keep it up. I asked her what she meant. I think what I actually said was, Huh? And then she told me that I know how to be strong and to keep standing my ground. Then she gave me an affirming look. Before I could respond to any of that, she told me that it would all be okay and just keep doing what you're doing. On a normal day, I may have written these comments off, but it was just the night before that I'd chosen to sleep in my room despite being terrified. I felt someone was in the room with me, and the shadows in my room were off. I could tell that one corner was darker than it normally was. Where some light should be, it was absent. I knew the presence and the shadow were the same thing. I could just feel, and even more so, I could hear something. Almost like a dog panting in the corner. It was an obvious sound, but it was also dark. I don't know what it was about that night, but... Instead of crippling myself with fear, I'd sat up and said very abruptly, Leave me alone. This is my room, and I don't feel like sharing it tonight. Leave me alone. I didn't yell, but it was the most stern I'd ever been at that age. And afterwards, I slept like a baby. In fact, I don't actually recall any other events until the day we were moving when I saw what looked like a full-blown shadow standing in the front window. So that day, after the woman said that to me, I just looked at her confused, and then, as I recapped my night in my head, I put it together and I smiled at her, just before turning to walk onto the bus. In a cooler world, I had more conversations with that lady and got more information. It seems crazy now, but... I never explored the idea of asking her some of my questions. Like, what was I defending myself from exactly? Or, how did she know when I was experiencing something? We moved later that year, and so I wouldn't end up making my way back over there for any reason. But yeah, as an adult, I think it's too bad that I never went down that route. I should have unloaded so many questions because something tells me that she had some answers. What about you?
Do you have any answers? If my memory is still working, I was 10 years old, and I had a strong fever that corrupted my body, and I became very ill. When I get sick, I don't like sleeping on my bed. I usually sleep on the floor. I get all my sheets and my pillows and relax there. One day, my parents came in to check on me to see if I was doing good or not. Suddenly, a tall man wearing pure dark clothing covering his entire body, was walking slowly in the hallway. My bedroom door was open. I couldn't see his hands, feet, or face, but he looked old by the way of his back and his walk. To me, back then, he was very scary. He didn't make a single noise, nor was I able to hear his footsteps. Our house was quiet, and it was clear to see everything, he almost looked like he was floating above the ground, but walking at the same time. I was totally shocked. He walked all the way to my parents' room at the end of the hallway. The moment he was in front of my parents' door, I told my parents, who were next to me because they were looking down at me, I told them to turn around and look at the strange man entering their room. As they turned their heads, they saw absolutely nothing. My dad told me, relax, it's just the fever makes you hallucinate and see things that aren't real. I was like, okay, yeah, you're right, daddy. I'm just seeing things. As time passed, I almost forgot about that weird incident and didn't really care about it at all. But there was still a part of me that believes in that shit that I saw when I was young. When I turned 17, my brother and I had a bit of a chit-chat. He was 12. He told me, Yo, you want to hear about some creepy dream that I had the other night? I was like, sure, tell me everything. He told me that when he was dreaming the other night, an odd woman was talking to him. And suddenly she told him, like six times, not to turn around in real life. But, you know, my brother is stubborn as fuck and does not listen to anybody, and decides to turn around. Because we slept in the same room, he was facing the opposite end of where I was sleeping. When he turned, he saw the exact same man, pure, black, dark clothing, covering his whole body, standing on my chest. Yes, standing, like, what the actual fuck? As soon as he saw him, he turned his head away and closed his eyes, and then the strange man disappeared. When he told me this, my heart dropped. I had a bad feeling about this sick-ass ghost. Like, what was he planning to do? I told my brother that ghost that he saw. I saw it seven years ago. He was totally shocked. Usually ghosts tend to do fucked up things like breaking dishes or making loud noises. But this ghost didn't do a single weird-ass activity. 
From that day, I never saw him again. I am 19 years old now, and if he were to come again, I would kick his old ass. What are your thoughts about this? If you've ever heard of the smiley face killings, then you're partially acquainted with my hometown, and likely other small towns as well. And if you're someone who believes it's a myth, well then, you have some research to do. The murders themselves, those aren't myths. You can find those with a simple Google search. It's the smiley face part, the part where they're all connected somehow, that's the part that's been given the myth title. A dangerous title, if you ask me. The authorities, despite a few detectives here and there, have been hesitant to connect these killings. Mainly because they span several states, and can usually be ruled out as an accidental drowning. But I guess until you have some personal stake in the whole thing, not connecting these killings can be easier than trying to capture the persons responsible. Insert my cousin's case. 2005. He was just 22 years old when he went missing at a bonfire party just near his house in Casnovia, Michigan. I was 21 at the time and probably would have been at the same bonfire if I wasn't still making my way home from Minnesota. It was the afternoon of June 12th and I got a call from my mom telling me not to panic but that I should get home as soon as possible, that the whole family was looking for my cousin. I spent the next three hours of my drive doing the opposite of what my mom told me. I panicked. My cousin wasn't the type to make people worry. He wasn't the type to wander off either. He simply was not the guy that stayed quiet for any amount of time. The fact that his mother, my aunt, and my mom were so worried wasn't a great sign. My cousin lived at home with his mom, and with that came some pretty straightforward rules. The most important being that you're always home before the sun comes up. The strangest thing I learned once I arrived was that the bonfire had actually only been a mile down from my cousin's house, meaning he was just steps away from his own home when he went missing. All of his friends and all of the people at the bonfire fully cooperated with the police and our family. They seemed genuinely concerned, and they seemed to be as perplexed as the rest of us as to where my cousin could be. The moment I got out of my car and into the arms of my family, I could feel the despair in their hugs, and I could hear it in their words. But if I'm being honest with myself, I just didn't believe my cousin was dead. At this point, he was just missing. But before we knew it, almost three weeks had gone by. The first and only lead had come from my cousin's friends. One of them had answered his call early in the morning that he'd gone missing. They said they asked my cousin where he was, and he said, I'm in a field. But that was it. 
The call dropped before she could get more. And when she tried to call him back, my cousin didn't answer. It was assumed by the police that his phone probably died. So for that whole three-week period that followed, we were deep in search parties, rescue missions, the message boards, and we were searching every field in existence, all with no luck. Still, I didn't feel like my cousin was dead at this point. Call it intuition, wishful thinking, what have you. But I can almost pinpoint the moment I believe he did pass. I think it was the day before his body was found. I was standing on the beach where my cousin's bonfire had been just weeks before. I'd felt compelled to walk out there. It felt like somehow it was the closest I could get to him and his last moves before he'd gone missing. But as I stood there, waiting for some answer to smack me in the face, I was instead met with the largest pit in my stomach that I'd ever felt. I'd experienced this pit again three years later when one of my best friends would pass, but my cousin was the first. Suddenly I was bawling, I mean full hysterics, and I dropped to my knees. It truly didn't feel like I was in control of my body. I found myself practically rolling around on the beach trying to console myself. Eventually, I started to feel the heaviness lift, and it truly felt like someone had placed a warm blanket over me. It was my cousin. I didn't see him or anything, but I felt him, like he was right there with me, comforting me. I remember saying out loud, You can't be dead. You just can't be dead. But instead of getting a response, the warmth just continued. Finally, I sat up and talked to him for a while. I just told him how sad everyone was going to be, how loved he was. I told him that our family would always take care of his mom. And then I just sat out there, watching the sunset, eventually going inside and keeping my experience to myself. It wasn't like I was unsure of what I experienced, more like I didn't want to upset the family anymore. I knew that there could be a time to tell them of my experience, but that it wasn't now. And so for almost two days following that experience, I kept on searching. I kept on with the hope and the belief that we were going to find him. I wish I was wrong, or rather I wish that we could have found him alive. They always say that families deserve closure, but I think a lot of people know by now that closure isn't tangible. It's not a reality for people who experience this type of loss. You never get to fill that hole ever again. It was made for someone who just simply cannot occupy it regularly. And that's what you're reminded of, with or without closure. It was 22 days after he initially went missing before they found my cousin's body. And where? In a lake that we had searched several times before. Even more, he was sitting up in the water, head and shoulders not even submerged, and his body it had not gone through the expected stages of decomposition, not for someone who 
may have passed away 22 days ago. According to the coroner, he'd likely only been dead for a few days. Cause of death? Undetermined drowning. This is where that whole closure thing comes into play. Our family knows this wasn't a drowning. My cousin was a great swimmer, and he'd spent his summers in high school as a lifeguard at the community center. And yes, lakes are different, and as are oceans and rivers, but none of them have the ability to remove my cousin from one location and put him into one of those bodies of water. But would a different cause of death change our lives significantly? No. We were never getting him back. So what about the smiley face killers, or killings? How does it apply here? Well, in my cousin's case, the last place anyone saw him was going to the restrooms near the bonfire area. It's walking distance, but not right next to, a little less than a quarter mile. Then, the various phone calls from his phone that night, morning, that put him in a totally different area to where his phone pings on multiple towers. Then weeks later, he's found in the same location that we've searched so many times. But this time, the location has decor. There was a smiley face painted on a large tree closest to my cousin's body. Though the new decor didn't seem significant at the time, it seemed odd, and my family notated the oddness. But what did it mean? Over the years... I've done a lot of research, and though the police are not willing to reopen my cousin's investigation, I'm a firm believer that my cousin was taken against his own will. Maybe it was because he was slightly inebriated, and it wouldn't have been the hardest to catch him off guard or sneak up on him. I think he was then held against his will, and eventually murdered. I believe that his case is linked to the smiley face killings. However, through my research, I have also come to believe that this isn't the work of one person or group. That it could be many persons. What I do know, they're real. The murders, the smiley faces, and the fact that they are all essentially unsolved. Meaning, whoever committed these crimes, well, they're likely still out there. I kept my assumptions under wraps for a long time, as to not hurt my family further. But that all changed in 2015. On the 10-year anniversary of my cousin's death, I was taking my girls to visit his gravestone. I noticed something from afar. It looked like a picture or something was placed on the gravestone. As we got closer, it was my youngest daughter who spoke first, saying... Mommy, look, a smiley face. Sure enough, someone had placed a smiley face sticker over the O in his name. Call it coincidence, but for me, that sticker meant war. For the last five to six years, I've deep-dived into these cases, the smiley face killings. I have spent hours that equate to days that equate to years of my life trying to figure out more about my cousin's case and all of these cases. Someday soon, I hope to release some pretty compelling connections in these cases 
But for now, I wanted to share my personal experience. Who knows, maybe someone out there has information, and maybe your show helps me get it. And if someone out there that's listening had something to do with any of these murders, know this, I am coming for you. friends, we've reached the end of the darkest hour, but I want to thank you so much for tuning in and thank you to everyone for sharing your stories. Do you have stories like these? I'd love to share them. Send them to me, amandadarkesthour at gmail.com. And if you like the darkest hour and you never want it to end, be sure to hit that subscribe button and tell all your friends. You can also join us on our subreddit, the darkest hour YT. Stay spooky.